Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 518 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, September 27, 2010, and what that means is it's Monday, it's your day. It's your questions, comments, and things you want me to look at and comment on by email. Great stuff today. we got stuff on water purification. Uh, we got stuff on peak oil. Lots of storm kick-up stuff over peak oil in the two shows I did last week, one on my own and one with Chris Martinson, and a bunch of other really great things to talk about today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth has everything that you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Uh, from Magpaw magazines and Maxpedition bags and everything in between. If it's tactical or down to the practical, if you need it for that type of a lifestyle, go check out Sawtooth. Uh, good sponsor to you guys. I want you to know they have a, a new website coming out. And uh, they're, with some you know technology updates and things like that, they're going to now be able to do discounts, automated discounts. And they're going to start doing 10% off for the member support brigade. They already have it set up. I just need to get it set up for you in the MSB. I will do that this week. And uh, by the end of this week, you'll be able to get 10% off of all purchases from them, at least from their new website, um, going forward as long as you're a member of the MSB. So that's great. And that's a big thing for a sponsor to do, to step up and do that and make sure that uh, they're doing a little extra. For, so even if you're not MSB, see them as what they are, a strong supporter of our show and our work here. Next up is the Lifesaver 4000 from Ready-Made Resources. Uh, the Lifesaver 4000 is a little water bottle, a little pump, and a little filter in it. Now, what makes that filter unique you know, different than those little cheapos that you get at a, uh, a grocery store or a discount store or something like that, is that that filter filters down to .015 micron. I've had a lot of people ask me about uh, portable water filtration systems and say, well, this is so much less than that, or is this is good, or is this better? It could be not even a cheap thing. This one's more expensive, but they say it's better. The spec you need when you're looking at uh, a water filtration tool for going out and dealing with water in very unknown circumstances. Uh, you're you're going to be in the wilderness. You don't know what you're dealing with. You're going to be in an urban breakdown. You don't know what you're dealing with. You want portable, on-demand water is what is the filtration spec. Because all it comes down to is if you've got a filter and there's holes in it, the water's got to get through there somehow. And there are certain things you cannot filter out. There are certain chemical contaminations because the chemicals were down to the atomic level. The only thing we can filter out to, is really particles. And to a lesser degree, we can do some chemical filtering with, with charcoal and things like that. But it really comes down to particle size when we're looking at bacterium and viruses and things like that. Okay, So the smaller the hole, the less can go through the hole. Well, the size of the Lifesaver filtration systems for the Lifesaver 4K, the Jerry Can filters, all of the things that Lifesaver makes, 0.015 micron. So if it's really important to you to have the best filter you can for that type of situation, 
ask the manufacturer what the spec on the filter's size is. And if it's not .015 micron or smaller, it doesn't filter down to the level of Lifesaver. Very simple, easy to understand mathematics there. So check out the Lifesaver 4K and the Lifesaver Jerry Cam from Ready Made Resources. Next up, make sure you're getting involved with us, uh, you know, socially on the web. We're more than just a show, we're a huge community. One of the best things you can do is join our forum. There's, there's thousands of members there. They're waiting to connect with you, to talk to you, to answer your questions, and for you to answer their questions. It's collective wisdom on the forum. There's a Ph.D. in prepping. There's a Ph.D. in agriculture. There's a Ph.D. in permaculture. There's a Ph.D. in do-it-yourself. And I'm not exaggerating. exaggerating. That's the information that's available at our forum. Other than it's not the type of Ph.D. where you write a thesis. It's the type of Ph.D. where you actually know what the hell you're doing. There is so much information there. Please partake of it and add to it. Because I know you know some things that other members of the community do not. Or you can look at something in a different way. Everybody has something to communicate. Be part of our community. Uh, also, connect with me on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You guys that are on Twitter, that are following me on Twitter, that's great. Hey, man, consider retweeting me once in a while. I'd really appreciate that. Um, I also want to let you guys know I did put some new videos up on YouTube over the past couple weeks. One's on the Wagon uh, Power Dome EX. I did that over the weekend because YouTube screwed up all day Friday. Um, check that out, and you're going to see a lot of comments there on the Wagon. I'm going to be doing a lot more video uh, on the Wagon. One thing I want you to understand, it's a great tool. It does a great job. It's really an emergency vehicle tool. It does have a backup power source. You can do some things with it. It is not equivalent to building a backup power source with, let's say, a couple, uh, you know, uh, high capacity uh, marine batteries or something like that. It is what it is, and I think some people are trying to analyze the thing a little bit too deep. So let it be what it is. It's a thing that if your car needs a jump start, it'll jump start your car. If you want to watch a DVD with the kids during a short-term power outage, you can do that. You want to want to run a fan for a couple hours. So that's the kind of stuff I'm going to be doing with it. Short-duration, low-demand things. And we'll just see how it works out because people have been pointing out, well, Wagon says it'll do this and Wagon says it'll do that on their website. Hey, manufacturers say lots of things. My purpose with this video series is I'm just going to plug a whole bunch of different crap into it and give you the results, and you can do with that what you want. But I think this is a great item uh, and really want you to consider adding one to your preps. With that, let's go ahead and get into today's show. Um, I do have a lot to talk about today uh, with you from stuff that has come in from the audience, and uh, there's some really interesting ones. Uh, the first one comes to us from Diane. Diane says... Uh, uh, one prep, or at least I believe it to be a prep, I don't hear you mention, is a good pellet or BB rifle. For $200 or less, you can have quality rifle, and for under $10, have 6,000 BBs. Uh, it can be used for many small animals and birds. It's lightweight, easy to carry. It can be owned and handled nearly by anyone. What are your thoughts? Um, it's a good tool. And I've actually done some video work with um, the Crossman, uh pellet pistol, the 1377 I think is the model number, I have one of those, I've bought a little carbine stock for it, I need to do another video kind of reviewing that, uh, we have quite a few uh, like Beeman Gamo air, uh, pellet rifles, uh, the piston, you know, brake barrel action, much more powerful than your typical BB gun, but they shoot pellets only, I guess the downside of that is, you know, you've got one form of ammo versus two different forms of ammunition, for gathering, um, any kind of game, birds, squirrels, things like that, though, you, I think you'll find with all air rifles, you're going to find that the uh, pellet is a superior tool for harvesting them anyway. So I lean toward the pellet rifles. 
uh, or even if it's a BB pellet weapon, storing pellets is your primary ammunition. Here's my thoughts, though, overall. Um, like the Beeman that we have. We have a Beeman brake barrel. shoots out over 1,000 feet per second with the 177. Switches out to 22 caliber pellets. And I find 22 caliber pellet rifles to be much better suited uh, for harvesting uh, any kind of game. Uh, and it fires that at about 800 feet per second. And it is damn deadly, damn powerful. Knocks the crap out of anything you shoot it with. I've shot squirrels with it, and I didn't even move. I mean, it anchored them. A uh, little tail action going on. Uh, hit properly, anyway. The problem with them is they're loud for an air rifle, and they're heavy. And because they're, you know, let's call them full size, uh, they're kind of conspicuous. So they have their advantages, and you have to decide you know, what's more important to you. But a lot of the low-end pellet rifles actually I think would make a pretty good prep. Uh, stuff like the Daisy 880, uh, the Crossman 760, those are two rifles that can be had for on sale 30 bucks. And uh, out to distance is another 177, right? And out to distance is, though, you know, of, of 25 to, to 40, 50 feet. They're pretty dead gone accurate. They both will shoot pellets and BBs. That lets you store a lot of ammunition, as you say. Uh, if you practice them, they're not tack drivers, but they're sufficiently accurate that if you become proficient with them, they can be used, especially for gathering things like small birds and things like that. Better than a slingshot, as far as I'm concerned, as far as ease of use and ease of learning to use. Um, good prep tool, and we have lots of air rifles as part of our preps. I don't see us really relying on them, though. Um, in an urban environment, it might be highly useful. Since our primary plan is to get out of an urban environment, when you compare an air rifle to something like a .22, um, there is no comparison. Uh, a 22 is lethal on, on game up to the size of deer when used properly. And for those that don't, don't think it is, I'll admit in my past when I was not quite 100% on board with following every law and regulation in the land, I've proven that a 22 is quite capable of taking deer. All right? Especially in a, a shit hit the fan scenario. So it will never be a replacement for the 22. But in certain environments, it may be better. My, my view on air rifles as a whole, they're inexpensive. They're cheap. They're effective. It makes sense to own a couple. Don't rely on it. It is a. It is a at best a fallback measure. Now, because here's what I'm going to try to explain. I mean, this is this is the big thing. What people say is, well, you know, if you if you had to, you could go out and shoot Tweety Birds, and at least you got something. Fine. Let's just accept that on its face. First of all, do you know how many sparrows you need to to make a meal? I mean, you're talking about a very meager existence. You get to a point where you're relying on shooting sparrows in the backyard. We're in a really bad situation, and there's not going to be a lot of sparrows in the backyard for very long after that. And you're going to have to get out of these urban centers anyway. We're talking, you know, the deep, you know, deep downward spiral of uh, society, the big disaster, the one that we don't really prepare for primarily, but we know in the back of our heads that is possible, right? So in that scenario, I'd really need a firearm because I need it as much for food gathering as I do protection. So is it a prep? Yeah. Do we have them ourselves? Yeah. Would I, would I be really happy if somebody took away all my air rifles and I didn't have them for day-to-day -day use and for you know potential food gathering and things like that? No. If I had to choose between a decent .22 and a decent air rifle, which one would I choose? The .22 over and over and over again. And for those that say they're not sustainable, you know, you can still buy 500 rounds of 22 ammunition for 20 bucks. 
if you're that worried about sustainability, go out and buy 10 bricks. That's 5,000 rounds. That's $200. If you're that worried, go out and buy 20 bricks. That's 10,022 rounds. If you ever get into a situation where you're using it for hunting and gathering, that's a lot of shooting before you'll run out. I think sometimes people have trouble with math. But uh, there's my thoughts. I know it's maybe not what you wanted to hear, but I'm not putting them down. I really want you to understand, anybody that out there is an air rifle enthusiast, and I know there's some like the big bores, the custom air rifles and things like that, and they have kind of a different level of sustainability. There are air rifles out there, folks, and I'm not talking about the theatrics the Gamo does with their PBA ammunition. I'm talking about 50 caliber air rifles that people shoot medium to large game with and put them down. Basically, they have the same level of penetration and knockdown power that um, maybe a, a, a you know a cap and ball musket would, and they're highly sustainable because as long as you can make balls for them, you can make pellets for them, <clears throat> and you can get air into them, you can keep using them. But they're expensive. Those are a major investment. And again, if I'm prepping and my resources are limited, like most of ours are, would I rather have that, or would I rather have a good you know, 30 caliber medium game rifle like a 308 or a 3006 and, uh, you know, a few thousand rounds of ammo to go with it. Well, I'm going to go with the firearm. If I've already got that worked out and it's kind of a novelty thing and I get the added sustainability, I might go into that role. I've not put my money there yet, so when I don't put my money into a place, I have a hard time telling you that you should, if that makes sense. Uh, let's go ahead with the next email. The next email is from Travis. He says, what are your thoughts, and this is kind of going really nice segue here, what are your thoughts on the balance between getting out of debt and spending money on other preparations? My wife and I are actively working a debt snowball. However, we also feel it's important to work on other preparations, like planting fruit trees, berries, expanding the garden, adding to our pantry, and other stores, etc. We, so we spend some money on those things as well. Do you feel it's better to put 100% of extra money toward debt or budget some extra for preparations? Um, well, Travis... Um, Here's the thing. It's highly dependent on how far in debt you are, how long it's going to take you to pay your debt off, and what your level of preparedness already is. The one that I am the most okay with is planting fruit trees and berries. And I'll tell you why. Unlike the garden where you have this initial expense and then it comes back and there's an expense every year for propagating things unless you're growing your own, and it takes all this work... Um, fruit trees, berry bushes, and things like that, once they're planted, if you get them through their first year, they're almost bulletproof. You get them through your second year, they're going to last forever. And the trees especially may take five to seven to eight years to produce. So to me, if you own land and you're going to stay there, the time to get trees in the ground is now. And if, if, if you waited a year, it's now. If you waited five years, it's now. I don't care. It's like it's like saving for your retirement. The time was yesterday, and if you didn't do it yesterday, do it today. Because there's such a return of investment on a good tree. But you have to be smart with that. Maybe that means that you want 10 trees and you do one a month. you know, Or you do five this year and five next year. Because you got to get out of debt too. Um, with things like food, I think what you do is you, with food, I mean, I'll tell you what we did when we decided we started to have, have some level of preps around our food. We kind of went back into the prepping mentality after 9-11 was when I kind of woke up to my roots and, and stopped behaving like an idiot who had forgotten where he came from. Um, we said we got to get rid of the debt. we got to live on a budget. We've got to deal with all these situations, but we also have to be prepared. So what we would do is we would set a grocery budget, and we would do everything we can within that budget to buy food for the week and extra food. And it didn't matter 
about whether we're paying debt off or not, what it was is we had set a budget for food. And then we stretched the food budget to add to the preparatory nature of the pantry. And as the debt load decreased and as the amount of money we had to put on the debt decreased to make something happen, then we looked at adding some long-term storage. So I think it's more about you set your budget, right? And your budget includes things like prepping. It includes things like a new pair of jeans. It's not like when you're paying debt off, you should be living like a pauper. Unless your debt's really, really bad and your income's really, really low and that's the only thing that's going to get it done. And then you might be living in a tough shed from Home Depot with, with a couple of car batteries for electricity and a hand pump for water. And if you had to do that for two years and it got rid of $100,000 worth of debt and you learned from that experience and otherwise you were going to take, you know, 20 years to pay off that debt, I'd say as long as you can survive it, as long as whoever's with you will do it with you, do it. But for most people, if you've caught this before you've gotten too stupid, debt can work against you or you can, you can make debt work for you. Because since you have the goal, because you have the motivation of eliminating it, all of a sudden the money you don't use on the debt becomes more efficient for you. So it's about every time you can cut an expense, now I have to decide does it go to debt or does it go to preparedness. And I would tell you that it doesn't really matter. It do, it do, in the grand scheme of things, if you have a good, solid debt payment plan, and that day, debt payment plan has you out of debt in four years, and you're working your butt off on that, and now you free up an extra $50, if you don't put it till the debt, but you keep the debt payments where they are now, you're still going to be out in four years. You have to look at it and go, if I throw that $50 on there, how much is that? If it, does it accelerate it down to three years? Okay, now I got, I still have to think about preparedness if anything happens during this three year period. This is why, you know, experts on the subject like Dave Ramsey say the first thing isn't paying your debt. The first thing is pay the minimum on your debt, save up all the money you can until you have a thousand dollar emergency fund. So that when you're paying the debt and an emergency happens, you don't stop your plan. You withdraw from the emergency fund, build it back up and keep paying on the debt. Preps are the same thing. If you're storing food, right, with your preps, and something happens, it's an emergency. It's like a second emergency fund. Not only do I have $1,000 put away in a rainy day fund to cover the cost of a new set of tires that I didn't see coming to the car because I wasn't paying attention, or $800 to fix the transmission that just went out on me, or whatever it is, or money for Billy's braces or whatever. If I need more than that $1,000, I can also cut grocery shopping out for two weeks till we get over the hump, draw from the preps, then start rebuilding and, and stay on the debt payment plan and stay on the life plan as well. So the balance is about having the plan in the first place. If you are working a debt plan and you don't know the exact day that your debt will be zero, you're not working a debt plan because you don't know what you're doing to your debt. You should be able to sit down with each of your debts and this may change because you might save more on interest than you expect or there might be one payment at the end that you didn't see for 25 bucks or something because they credit card companies have a nasty habit of you pay it off and they manage to charge you just a little bit more and people ask why I hate them so much and uh, all of these different things. But you should be able to say, okay, debt one should be paid off by February of next year. Uh, when I take that money and put it on debt two, that should have us paid off by June of the next year. And then the only thing left is going to be debt three, and that should be, you know, uh, December of, uh, of next year. So I've got, you know, a year and a half, and I'm done. 
And if you don't have that, you haven't thought about it enough. Once you have that and you have the money allocated to make it happen, the rest of the money is up to you what you do with it. Now, I'm going to tell you, as you free up money, and you will free up money, when you get like your third or fourth month into this, and you look at that first debt that seems so insurmountable, and it's almost gone, or it's close to or it's half of what it was, you're suddenly going to go, huh, this is cool. You'll get a feeling that you haven't had since you were a little kid, and like your parents gave you a bike for Christmas. That's what it's like. It really is. And you'll be like, oh, what else can we do? You'll start looking at it going, oh, this is crap. I don't need this. This is crap. I don't need that. And all of a sudden you go, oh, here's another $75. But you're also a prepper. So at that point, if you do 50 toward the debt and 20 toward your preps, I'm okay. If you do 20 toward the debt and 50 for your, your preps, I'm okay. I'm okay either way. But the debt plan has to come first, and then we use what's left and what we can eke out of what's left to prep. I hope that's a good answer. It's the best one I can give under the circumstances. Um, the next one I have for you is kind of a, an interesting one. I have a, a guy named Bob here. Bob emails me, and, and I've heard a little bit of rumbling with this and some comments out uh, from the interview I did with Chris Martinson last week on uh, Zero Heads where they picked up the interview. And a couple people in the comments section seem to agree with Bob. And what Bob says is, Jack, uh, I want to talk to you about water and water purification. One thing I heard both you and Chris talk about is having a water filtration system. My problem with water filtration systems is I don't believe that they're sustainable. You're going to get to a point where you need more water than the system is able to provide for you. And if the shit hits the fan, you can't just order new filters from, as Chris called it, the big brown truck of happiness. What are your thoughts? Well, here you go, Bob. Um, let's do some math, because that's what Chris Martinson's big on, and I'm big on math, too, because math doesn't lie. Um, I've been talking to uh, Jeff over at, who's the Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy, about a new Berkey system for our household, and uh, we've got that coming. should be shipping today. I think we got a crown, a crown or an imperial, whichever the one that's 4.5 gallons is. We've got that coming today to add to our ability to provide pure water for, for us. We have other methods of water purification. We also have a swimming pool for everything but drinking water. Uh, you know, that water can be used for that. We've got all kinds of water redundancy. We've got a bug out location with a, with a well that's 650 feet deep. And, uh, one of the things I've added to it is, uh, solar redundancy for the pump. Now we can't run it all the time, but we can run it a few times a day with solar redundancy that we've added to it. So I've got all kinds of water, you know, redundancy already, and yet I'm adding a filtration, another filtration system. Well, as part of that discussion, I said, you know, I need to buy some additional filter packs for it. So there's two packs uh, that run in this this one unit. And there's lots of other units out there. I think Berkey's a great unit. That's why I have them as a sponsor. But there's other good systems out there. And you look at, I said, well, Jeff, I need to know how many of these extra ones to buy based on you know supporting myself and my wife, uh, a couple dogs and a couple cats and maybe some livestock for drinking water. Right? I don't have to purify my water going in the garden. So my thought was, well, just let's start out with making sure that me and my wife can drink water and, and for a long time. So I said, how long do these filter systems last? He said these systems, the, the, the two filter packs together combined, will filter 6,000 gallons of water. 6,000 gallons of water. Now, on a survival situation, can you live on a gallon of water a day? Absolutely. Plenty of people right now are living on less than a... You should probably drink a gallon of water a day, but plenty, plenty of people are living on less. Right, so I can live on a gallon a day if I have to. Let's say it has to be two gallons a day. All right? 
So it's two gallons a day per person. So for my, my wife and I, I need four gallons a day. Now let's say that a you know a shit hit the fan scenario has come up, and the water I'm filtering is less than optimum, and I only get three thousand gallons uh, per filter pack out of my Berkey because there's additional material in the water that clogs the filters faster. Okay, so at four gallons a day of filtration for my wife and I to consume water and cook with. That's 750 days, right? So we divide that by 365 and we get 2.05 years. Let's call it two years in a survival rationing situation per set of filter packs. Now, if I buy four of those, I have eight years of capacity to make sure that we have enough water for cooking and drinking for two people. How sustainable do you expect anything to be? If we can get through eight years of the worst of, and we have to be to think about this, to not be able to get filter packs, we have to be for eight years straight. Not a short duration problem, but we always keep that reserve in stock. To not be able to get filters for a Berkey or any other system for eight years straight, other than if that manufacturer is out of business, you have to switch to a new one. For eight years without the big brown truck of happiness, we are at. You know, Tittawakini. We are at the end of the world as we know it. We are at the worst situation in the world, and with that limited reserve capacity, I can still go eight years. If you have a family of four, you double the purchases. It is eight years. You want to add another two years? You want to go a decade with sustainability? You add two、uh, more filters, one more set, eighty-five bucks, and now it's ten years. If there's four of you, you know, four people in the family, you add four sets. It's a decade. What else do we store that's that sustainable? That would be my question for Bob and for the people that objected over in this other comment thread, which I think is where Bob came from, by the way. I don't think he's a longtime listener. I think he's a new listener that, that heard about us at Zero Edge, which is great. And welcome, Bob. And I'm not putting you down. And I'm not putting anybody else down that asked that question. If we don't ask questions like that, then we don't examine and we don't. Just like the debt we talked about, how do we know how you know how do we know whether we put this money to debt or not? Well, how much are we paying on the debt? How long is it going to take us to pay the debt off? How do we know if water filtration is a sustainable solution or not? We do the math, you know. We do the math, and even when we cut it in half, we can still look at five to six years of sustainability with a very small investment. That's what is important that we do with all of these situations. We ask the questions, but instead of asking the question just from a standpoint of "I'm trying to prove that what somebody says is wrong," we ask the question from a standpoint of "Is it valid?" And how do I determine whether or not it's valid or not? Things like peak oil spring to mind when we think of that, but more on that later.、Uh, next, this email comes from Greg. Greg, who is the、uh, the blogger behind RV-103.com. Greg, who retired early from NASA. This is not really a survival thing, but Greg is a longtime listener to the show. He asked me to read this on the air. So I will,、uh, because he's been a good friend of TSP, and I think that the people that this is happening to deserve a little bit of a mention somewhere where somebody will hear it and care. Jack, next week another 1,400 people from Kennedy Space Center will be laid off permanently. By the end of the program, around 10,000 contractors will be let go at Kennedy Space Center, and thousands more at Johnson Space Center, Marshall Flight Center, and other various NASA locations across the nation. I wrote a blog post asking people to send their thanks to these people. Some who have been there for 30 years for serving our nation and giving our nation productive human space 
a productive human space flight program. As you know, Obama has canceled our new program, Constellation. For the first time in 50 years, America will not have a human space flight program. When the last space shuttle launches next spring, that will be the last time you will see an American astronaut fly on an American ship for 10 years or more. Please take time to read the post if you're willing. Please share it with your listeners so they can contact, use the contact info in the post to send their thanks to these good people. As Wayne Hale, the former shuttle director, once said, these are ordinary people are that are doing extraordinary things. Be safe and be well, Greg. Um, it is important from time to time that we stop and thank people for what they've done for our nation. Um, I know a lot of people are not maybe putting the space program as a priority one in your lives, but for five decades, our nation has been able to take men and send them beyond the boundaries of our atmosphere. And out of that program has come many great things, some of which I don't think Americans even realize. A lot of the advances in medicine that have saved lives have come from our space program. There are those of you, the purest libertarians, and I am a libertarian, but I'm not a purist, um, that would say, well, look how many weapons have come from the space program. And I'll acknowledge that. And I'll acknowledge, in fact, that sending a man to the moon was a great way to ramp up uh, you know, funding and costs so that we could build missiles. But the people at NASA didn't want to build missiles. They wanted to explore the outer reaches of our solar system and someday the outer reaches, uh, the outer reaches of our universe. And they've brought us a keen understanding And if we were even to look at it that way and say, well, they were used for the production of weapon systems. So once they're used, are we to throw them away? Like a used Kleenex? Or are we to look at the other great things and noble things that they've done and respect and admire that? Please do me a favor today. Stop by the survivalpodcast.com. Look up the show notes for today's show notes. I'll put a link to Greg's blog post. Give it a read. And take a moment of your time today to thank the people who have made one of the greatest errors in U.S. history possible. 50 years of being able to take our men and women, send them into outer space, and bring them back to our Earth, and most of the time safely. And think about the fact that sometimes those people did not come home safe. They gave their lives for something greater. And understanding that what we have here is precious, but reaching out and going in to find something more is even more precious. It's that spirit that brought people to our nation in the first place, that made them cross an ocean at a time of uncertainty to a land filled with wilderness. The space program and the space programs around the world today, those are the people that are pioneering and going to that unsafe place for something more. Let's take a moment and thank them today. And it's a shame that we've given up on that dream for a decade. Let's go on to the next question. This, this comes from Dark Winter on the forum. It says, Jack, I want to start by saying that I realize fossil fuels are limited, and with exponential population growth, they will not be available for us in the near future as they are today. But I have a few observations I was hoping you could clarify me uh, for me. And he starts out with saying, if fossil fuels are running out, why are they cheaper today than in 1920? Um, let's start with that before we go through the other things he's asking. Well, I'll tell you why. It's called economy of scale. In 1920, how many oil refineries were there? How many places were they pumping oil out of the ground? How many cars were on the road? How many people had cars? How many working middle class people were purchasing petroleum in the form of gasoline on a daily basis compared to today? Even taking it apart, um, you know, per capita. And the answer is today it is so much more. And that in any supply demand system, that there's a time and period where as demand increases, Expense increases concurrently, 
And at some point, industry and demand reach an equilibrium, and we go into a mass production phase, and prices become extremely stable, and they turn back down, and they level in that production phase. And eventually, the product being manufactured either can no longer be manufactured in quantity, or demand for the product goes down, So production levels drop, economy of scale drops, and even products that are not desirable anymore to the few people that desire them, they have to pay more. This is how pricing works. That cycle could take six months with some new technologies. It could take 60 years with other things. All right, That's all that it is. So Brian gives me a big explanation of how fuel costs less today than it did in 1920. And I would tell you, first of all, fuel costs exactly. You know, I give him the benefit of the doubt there, because he's adjusting inflation up and down. But in 1920, I could buy a gallon of gas with a silver quarter, and today I can buy a gallon of gas with a silver quarter. It's almost identical in price. In fact, gasoline stayed almost identical in price if we use silver as a metric against it, uh, all the way up until 1964 when we got rid of silver out of our currency and switched over to nickel-clad coins. And from that point on, in most instances, the silver quarter would still buy the gallon of gas. So it really has it. Uh, but his next thing he goes into change is constant. And I don't want to read it. says the email's long and well thought out. But he's basically explaining the history of the world and how every time there's an energy change, people adapt, overcome, improvise, and go on. Society doesn't end. This is what I keep saying about peak oil, and God, for, for the life of me, I, I completely understand the people that object to peak oil, but I don't understand your unwillingness to comprehend and understand real peak oil. If you're going to object to it, object to what it is instead of what it is not. And here's what I mean. Peak oil is not the end of all oil. Peak oil is not a place where you wake up tomorrow, you go to the gas station, and every gas station for a thousand miles around says sold out, there is no more oil, and it's World War III for the five gallons that some guy has in a basement in Saudi Arabia. That isn't peak oil. So if you're going to object to it, object to the reality of what it is. Peak oil is a point in time at which you no longer can meet the demand with supply. That is all. And where that demand and supply will not come back into uh, alignment. Unless the demand is reduced. Because he talks about, well, prices, if it goes high enough, people will conserve, they'll look for alternatives, they'll look for you know other sources of energy, and we'll have rail systems and coal distribution. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brian. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't. Because we have rail distribution. Great. What runs the trains? Diesel fuel and electricity. Okay? So there's oil. So we get rid of the, the we say, okay, well, we got electricity. Where's the oil come from? A jelly bean field? Well, the electricity comes from the coal. The coal comes from the coal mine. How do the people get to the coal mine to mine the coal? What runs the giant shovel that digs the hole that the coal comes out of? We can say all of these things about what we could do. We can talk about there's more oil that we could drill for, but we're not drilling for it. We can build more refineries, but we're not building them. We can build thorium nuclear reactors, but we don't have one on the drawing board. We can build nuclear reactors, but we need 700. More than exist on the planet today. We need that many more to replace the energy usage. We're going to replace half of it. We need 350. More, it's still more than we have in the United States. I think we're building four. We're going to replace a quarter of it 
fine. You know, what do we need now? 175? We're going to replace a twelfth of it. We're, we're not building them. They're not there. Here's how I feel about peak oil for the United States. Let's not even talk about the world. Here's a few facts for you guys. I mean, you got to just take these at face value because it's what they, they're factual. Again, these are facts. I mean, we can we can debate whatever we want about you know what we could do, but the facts are this: in 2010, the top producers of oil, the people that make the most oil, produce it and ship it out, keep it, whatever, just production in general. Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United States, Iran, China. Okay, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United States, Iran, and China. And there's kind of a battle right now between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Russia's the number one producer, then Saudi Arabia's, then Russia's, then Saudi Arabia's, back and forth. Okay, Russia, Saudi Arabia, United States, Iran, China. Um, if you look at the top ten importers, or top five importers, United States, Japan, China, Germany, and South Korea. So if we look at the importers, one of the top importers of oil, United States, is also a top producer. So we produce as much is any of the other top five. And we imp- so does China. The United States and China are both top producers and top importers at the same time. China is tiny in comparison to where it is going. The United States is what it is. I don't see a lot of economic and uh, population and demand growth in the United States. We're pretty level compared to something like China, okay? Just to make this relative. If we look at the top consumers of oil, the United States, Japan, China, India, and Russia. Okay? If you look at the top exporters of oil, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the UAE, Iran, Norway. You notice who's not on that list anymore? Mexico. Just saying. You notice who's not on that list anymore, anymore either? Canada. Top exporters of oil in 2010 are Saudi Arabia, Russia, UAE, Iran, and Norway. Canada and Mexico are huge sources of oil for the United States, so they are no longer a top exporter. Okay. Now, a few things to ponder. Notice that China is on every list but one. China is on every list but one. Which list is China not on? Well, China is not a top exporter of oil. Notice the U.S. is on every list but one. Which one are we not on? We're not a top exporter. We're a top producer and a top consumer. Notice that Russia's on every list but one. Which list are they not on? Well, Russia is a top exporter. They are a top consumer. They are a top producer. They are not a top importer. Russia has not experienced peak oil yet as a nation. The United States has experienced peak oil. We can no longer produce enough to sustain ourselves, and our total production has been in decline for 40 to 50 years. And we're still a top producer, even though we've been in decline for that long. We also have to notice that something about another very big player in the global economic marketplace, and that's India. India is only on one list. They are a top consumer of oil, but they are not a top importer yet. There's a powder keg here. And here's how the powder keg works for the peak oil deniers. Let's say that peak oil for the world is 50 years away. Well, to me, that means the United States is going to start suffering from it in 10 to 15 years. Hear me out. Russia, China, 
India, to a lesser extent Brazil, are four rapidly growing and increasing economies. They are massively increasing their middle class, and they are going to put a tremendous demand on the oil supply line. As they do this, the oil has to come from somewhere. The United States, up till now, we have been able to use more oil than everybody else because we had the money to be the big kid bully on the block. Our economy is in desperate decline. The peak oil denier never says, well, the U.S. economy is great. It's fine. There's nothing to worry about. Everything will be just swell. In fact, they usually say, hey, the economy is a bigger threat than our oil. See, the problem is you can't do that. It's like trying to separate the United States economy from money. It's trying to, let's say trying to separate the United States economy from jobs and employment. It's like trying to separate the United States economy from housing prices. Oil is our economy. Oil is our economy. It's how every single worker gets to work every day. One way or another, oil is involved in the process. Even the guy that rides a bicycle to work because he thinks he's going to save the planet because he believes in Al Gore, uh, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Sandman. Right? Even he, where does bicycle come from? Where do the tires on his bicycle come from? How do they ship his bicycle to him? When he rides his bicycle to the store, smugly thinking that he's better than other people because he's not burning fuel and he's not creating a carbon footprint and he buys some stuff at the store, how'd the stuff get to the store? How'd the employees get to the store? How was the packaging that he bought his little you know stuff in made today? That nice little bottle of red wine that he's going to drink with all his global warming friends and talk about how stupid we are. Where did the wine get grown? How did the grapes get crushed? How did they get shipped to wherever he is? I'm being a little facetious, but I want you to understand how deep the involvement of oil is. How much fuel is burned every year just to plow fields and to harvest grain and to grow all of the food that we eat? Oil is everywhere in our economy. It is our economy. And part of the reason that we've been able to consume 25% of it, and only be 5% of the global population is we are the wealthiest nation in the world. We have the strongest military force, and we have the most economic power. That is changing. That is changing. We are going to be surplanted by China. Period. And you can, you can get on your soapbox and tell me this country can do anything. What we can do and what we do are actually different things, though, folks. Do you, does anybody foresee a leader in government in the next 20 years that will stand up and say, we will become, we will remain the dominant power in the world, we'll be proud of that, and we're going to fix our problems? As we lose the power of influence to say we get more oil because we can afford to buy it and because we control so many things, we don't get 25% to 5% anymore. As the whole world moves toward a more socialistic viewpoint, and it is, I don't like it, but it is, and nations like Russia and China have strong alliances with each other and become two of the largest users and producers of oil together, they can have a major effect on the global economic market. And I think they'd rather align with each other than with us. This leaves war and military force out. This is just economics. When we look at the BRIC alliance, the BRIC alliance is Brazil, India, Russia, China. And their requirements for oil and their production and their influence on the world, what do you do if you can afford more than your competitor for a given substance and you want to put them out of business? You start a bidding war. 
You drive the external cost of the product up as high as you can while you rely on your internal production. And what they do have to buy, they end up buying from you or from one of your cohorts. And you profit at their expense as they experience demise. All we need is a 1% decline in supply every year for 10 years to have a 10% decline in supply over a decade. Can we fix this? Will we fix this? Of course we will. Will we go to more natural gas? Yes. Will we go to more coal? Yes, and that's going to do a lot of damage to our environment. Coal is one of the worst forms of energy on the planet, and the Chinese are going to do this too. The, the huge levels of mercury that are in our water systems today, most of them are from burning coal. Never mind what coal extraction does to the land. But will we fix it? Yes. But see, here's the problem. Americans, we have this view of history that's so screwed up. We look back at World War II. Let's use a concrete example. It's not that long ago. World War II. World War II was great for the United States, is the way we look at it today. I mean, we won, right? It was wonderful. We emerged as the true superpower in the world. We stabilized the planet. We fought a noble crusade on multiple fronts. We were the difference maker. We won. How many died? How many died in pointless battles? Not just the big battles that we won, that we hear how important they were. How many died in fields and in ditches and in foxholes and in points that didn't really matter? How many people died that weren't even in the active war on the seas? How many children grew up without fathers? How much of this has been erased from history? We just talk about how good the result was. What was it like to be a widow in 1944, knowing that your husband and father of your children would never come home? How many people were that widow? What was it like to graduate high school in 1943 at 18, have no prospects for college and stand in front of a draft board and be shipped off to either the European or Asia Pacific Theater? What were these things like? How many died? World War One, same questions. Plus, how much illness was brought home? Half a million people wiped out by the Spanish flu. We look at Iraq today. What will the history books say? But they will ignore the sacrifices They will ignore them. They'll pay homage to them, but they'll really ignore them. They won't explore them. The mental anguish, the disfigurations, the damage. What does this have to do with peak oil? It has everything to do with peak oil. Because what the peak oil denier says is, look back at history, we've always adapted. What was the transition like? What was it like for those prepared for the transition? And what was it like for those who were unprepared for the transition? You know, oh, we used to use wood and then we went to coal. Well, there's a couple centuries we'll just skip over. What was it like? How many people froze to death while we were figuring out how to do it? At a time when we were far less dependent on technology than we are today. We can build natural, natural gas, you know, cars. And how long will we pay $8 a gallon for gas while we get that sorted out? You know? 
Well, we can put in windmills and we can put in solar. And how much will our electricity cost while we're getting that sorted out? And how long will it take before we compensate for the loss? Peak oil is not the end. It's not over. It's not society. It's not game, checkmate, done. It's a change. That's all it is, is a transformation. And when people look back 200 years into the future, if we're still here, if we haven't screwed everything up and blown ourselves up by now, and they look back and they go, oh, look at the change. Isn't that nice? How many of them will stop and ask, what was it like to be a person during that change? What was it like for those who were prepared and for those who were not prepared? How many people shivered? How many people froze to death? How many people went bankrupt, lost everything that they had? How many people had to work for another 20 years into what should have been their retirement because they were wiped out? How many people fill in the blank? Will they ask that question? And I'll ask you, do we ask that question? And then I'll ask you one more question. Do we really understand transformational change on a national or global level if we don't ask that question? Can we really look to history and say it'll be okay without understanding what be okay will mean? Peak oil is real. And it's not real in the Hollywood fantasized way. It's not real in the eco-hippie, freaked out, yo man, there's going to be no oil in 10 years way. It's not real that way. Us having less and paying more for what we still get and dealing with the consequences for that is as real as anything you will ever deal with in your future. And you will deal with it, and your children will really deal with it. We don't. I'm not telling you what the transformation is going to be like, because I don't know. I am telling you, be prepared for change. And change is never easy. And the more you deny it, the more you pretend it's not happening, the greater the consequence when you find yourself in the middle of it. That's what peak oil really is. So nothing that Dark Winter said in his email is exactly not true. It just doesn't matter. We still have the same consequences. Here's an interesting one. This comes from Veggie Dog. Uh, I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> Maybe it's just you're like into gardening or whatever, but if you like to eat vegetable hot dogs, ugh. There's there are worse things to eat, but I'm not sure that I've ever eaten one. Um Seriously, though, uh, Veggie Dog says, uh, is government storing huge amounts of food? I just viewed a couple of YouTube videos about underground food storage caves slash warehouses. I'm not sure how secret it is, but holy crap, what else is the government doing that most people don't know about? Or is the underground cave not a government at all, just a private company? Thanks. Well, I, I don't know what it is because you just sent me the video link, so I can't go look at it and say government or you know private corporation. Is the government storing large amounts of food in underground caves? Yes, and I have been doing it. For a long, long time. Certainly, uh, it started really heavily during the uh, Cold War and the build-up toward a potential global thermal nuclear war. Um, the conspiracy theorist will say this is proof that they plan to wipe us all out and go below ground for a few years while we die. Um, I think you're just going off the deep end if you're thinking that. I don't see this as that big of a deal, that the government is storing large amounts of food underground. If I were the government, I would store lots of food underground. If I had a big cave, I'd store lots of food in for myself. Um, there's no way to know what the actual motivation behind this is, but 
the rumors, if you want to call them that, that the U.S. has, you know, in in caves in Kentucky and Virginia and places like that, um, prepared areas as shelters for themselves and for those who they would choose to shelter are absolutely factual. There's there's no doubt about that. There's not even denial of it. Usually, you know, at least if you know there's any doubt about something, the government will deny it. As far as I know, there's been no denial by our government that there are underground caves that store food and, and, and other preparations in the event of some cataclysmic event. Um, you're free to conspiracy theorize to the probable, to the ridiculous on that if you want to. I look at it this way. It doesn't really affect me, and it doesn't really affect you, because uh, they probably ain't going to let us in. So we need to be preparing for ourselves. And I think there's a lot of things like that. Like, I just went on, on pink oil for a long time, so I don't want to really bring it back, but... It, you know, the thing it comes down to with anything out there today, folks, is when we look at something, it doesn't really matter what we could do. It matters what's going to happen, right? So we could go back to sound money and fix our currency problem, but we ain't going to do it until it blows up in our face, right? So we could drill more oil, but we're not doing it. We could refine more, build more refineries, but we're not doing it. We could this, we could that, you know? And in the end, we have to say, what does it mean for me? What it means for me when I hear something like, well, the government has food stored up is if something bad really happens, then they can take care of themselves and I'm going to be on my own, which I already figured was the case anyway. So that means I need to make sure I'm as prepared as I can possibly be. There's no conspiracy theories there. I had a review recently by a guy that has a podcast about podcasts. And he said that on certain shows, you're definitely going to hear Jack go off in a conspiracy realm. I don't think I ever go off in the conspiracy realm. Um... I think that I'll entertain the conspiracy theorist once in a while with, let's take a look at your theory, but I think generally speaking, when I say I agree, it's not conspiracy at that point. The reason I agree is it's proven. It's there. Uh, Bilderberger would be a perfect example. For a long time, Bilderberger, anybody who believed in the Bilderberger group was a conspiracy theorist. Well, we know it's true. We know what happens. We have guest lists now. We have videos of the people arriving. So at that point, the fact that a group of very powerful people meet once a year and have this discussion and then go back and do something with the results, that's not conspiracy. How could you call it conspiracy when you've seen it play out? And and I think that, that there's a point in time where we look at certain things and go, that's just the way things are. It doesn't mean we don't fight against it, but we also realize our own limitations. And a lot of the people that would say... You know, something's not true are the same people that believe the conspiracy theory and say that it's being done on purpose. Well, in the end, aren't we all in the same boat? Do we better take care of ourselves boat? Whether the rational explanation or the fanatical explanation or most likely in most instances that the, the some kind of sanity between the two is right, does it really matter what the results, you know, what caused the results or do the results matter? If you're in a house that catches on fire, once you're out of that house safely and you've accounted for your family members and you've taken your losses and, and, and thank, been thankful for what you've saved, you might care whether or not a wire shorted out or somebody threw a Molotov cocktail through your window. Okay, You'd want to know and you'd want to take appropriate action in the aftermath. Either when you build a new home, make sure it's the electrical code and that doesn't happen again. Or see the person who threw the Molotov cocktail through your window served in justice. But while your house is burning, it doesn't matter. 
While your house is burning, you have to act on your plan and get your people out. And there's so many things in this world that we explore about potential disaster that we worry way too much about causes that we cannot affect and not enough about actions that we can take. And this is why I don't pay attention to a lot of the media in my space because it's so problem-focused. And the solution is always fighting and waving a sign and yelling and screaming, and that shit doesn't feed you. It just doesn't. It doesn't give you water to drink. It doesn't keep you sheltered. It doesn't keep your family together. I'm not saying that some of it's not important, because some of it is. Some of it's wasteful. What I am saying is you better see to your own first, if that makes sense. Uh, I have a very cool email to read you here as our final one for today. And it comes from a guy named Carlton. Carlton says, It was about 100 years ago in the 1910s that my great-grandfather moved his family closer to a city so they could get an education and better themselves in life. Well, he stayed back at their 1,000-acre farm to make a living for them, pulling all the boys back during harvest times and such. At the time, in central Texas, you could own a 1,000 acres and still be relatively poor, as they were. He came to Texas only a dozen years prior, with only 50 cents to his name in his pocket, and his home he built himself, one room at a time. Looking back at his decision with 100 years of hindsight, it was not a bad decision, though it would have been quite nice if those 1,000 acres were still in our family. America was in a technological and educational growth phase that required some urban civilization to profit from it. Times have changed. I won't speculate on dating the moral or legal peak of American civilization, but the financial peak was 2008. We are over-centralized, and the means to better ourselves, such as modern survivalism, is radically decentralizing. With homeschooling and the Internet, I wonder how soon it may be best to reverse my great-grandfather's steps and move my family to the country while I stay behind for a time to earn a living to support them until royal living will be profitable again for all of us. The cycle really has me thinking. I won't jump this gun. I just know timing next steps may be one of the most important decisions for my family for the next hundred years. Just as my great-grandfather's decision, thanks to people such as yourself for helping prepare my family for the next 100 years, Carlton. See, Carlton has the timeline, right? Carlton's looking at a hundred years. A hundred years. Carlton realizes that the decisions he makes today aren't just for him or even just for his children, but for his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. That's what I've been trying to say for so long. That's why when I talk about something like peak oil or any of the other controversial subjects that people say, we have so long before we have to worry about it. We have so many things that we can do to deal with that, and society will adapt. But how? How will society adapt? Will it be written into a history book on three pages? 100 years that you lived through, that you're gone now, you're dead? You made it to the centurion mark at 101, 102, you checked out? And a few years later, kids are sitting in whatever a schoolroom is at that time, reading about 60, 70 years ago, reading about a change and how it worked out? How much of your life history, how much of your family's history, how much of our collective history, how much of our collective suffering in history is written out by the winner even about themselves? And I think Carlton makes a good point, and this is something interesting I've never really thought of. It's not just about moving back to urban areas, but how many people 
may be faced with this decision and start looking at it this way. We can buy land in the country relatively inexpensively now. Relatively. Compared to the city. What if I live in a little one-bedroom condo in the city and pay for land in the country and let my family go back to that land now? Well, I act as the sugar daddy to make that happen until such time as I can go join them. How many people did the exact reverse around the turn of our century? The farm actually supported the ability for people to go to the city initially. And eventually, the people in the city started sending money back to the people in the country, and then the people from the country came along. What about a reverse of that? Carlton, it's one of the most insightful things I've ever heard from a listener. Thank you for sharing it with me. And as far as when you should do it, I don't know. But it's an answer to a question of how that I've really not considered before. I believe that anybody that can right now, if you can make a living for yourself and move out of urban centers, not into some suburb of a small town where you still have houses all around you, but a few acres or more. If you can do it, do it now. Do it now. Don't do it now because you're afraid that the zombies are going to march. Don't do it now because you're afraid of the end of the world as we know it. Do it now for the next hundred years of your family's lives. Do it now because of the opportunity that it represents. See the change in advance and grab onto that better life. And Now, if you're an urbanite, if you like the cities then find the place in the city that you can live the style of life that you want and go for it. People stayed on the farms when everybody else went to the city. And it wasn't a bad thing for everybody that did it. And the reverse course is going to work out the same way. What we're going to see in our future, in my belief, this is my belief, I'm purely on opinion at this point, but my opinion is that we're going to see cities grow to a point of complete instability and unsustainability. And then collapse down to a, 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 a point of either demise or equilibrium. Some cities will survive and some cities will collapse. It's going to be based on how they're run, what new technologies they're built with, where they're located, and how they're able to produce for themselves and the resources that are accessible to them. I think that cities like Phoenix are dying. I think the cities like Las Vegas, Nevada are going to die. They are too far from water. I think that many cities in California, they're already broke. Add, add the resource limitations, they're going to die as cities. That doesn't mean there won't be any people there, but as these big metropolitan cities, they'll die. The cities that survive are going to have the resource of water nearby, and they're going to solve the problem of local food production to some percentage. But that much of America is going to have to move back to a more decentralized existence. And you have to think about what brought people to the cities in the first place. Opportunities. Opportunities mostly in manufacturing, which is a dying industry for the United States. We don't build things as much anymore. What we do build, we build the best of. I believe that. But we don't build a lot of things anymore. We've let other people do that for us. So, so much of what we do today is so technologically centered and based and with things like global communication systems, the need for people to be in a place is diminished. And we're already seeing the micro... Because human beings, to me, are happy in small bands. And we are unhappy in large conglomerations. We just don't like to be that tight together. People have personal space. 
And they only want people in that personal space at certain times when they're invited, not walking down the road. People adapt to it, they deal with it, but they don't really like it. And because of that, we're going to see a change. And all I'm saying today, is my last thoughts for you on this, is if a change is coming, it's best to be prepared for it and be on the leading edge of that change. That's it. It's not about the world ending. It's about the world changing and living in a time of a tremendous change. And if anything that I'm saying sounds too far for you, I want you to imagine that it's 1979. And I tell you over the next 30 years the following will occur. The Soviet Union will fall apart. There will be a technology in people's homes that allow them to cook food in 30 seconds or less. There will be a global communication system put in that will let people communicate around the globe in real time for free. The United States will have its greatest period of prosperity in history, followed by its greatest downfall economically since the Great Depression. And if I just kept going with all the things that have happened in 30 years, and all of the change that happened in 30 years, and I said to you, if you were prepared for this change... You'll do better through these 30 years. You probably would have thought it was crazy. That's all I'm saying, man. Change is coming. Be ready for it. It's not hope and change from Washington. It's the reality of change on the ground. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living